Welcome to the Visma Ski Classics podcast, Usha Tulebi. Visma Ski Classics is the long-distance ski championships with 35 pro teams. In season 12, there are 15 races in 12 event locations, bringing pro team athletes and recreational skiers together. On this podcast series, we'll analyze the events on the Pro Tour and the Challenger Series, portray the legends of the sport, and help you to become a better skier. Good day to you all out there listening to Ushatu Levi podcast. I'm really happy that you are out there and interested in our podcast series, and I hope you're learning a lot. Speaking of learning, I think today you will definitely get into the world of coaching and not just coaching the uh, long distance skiers, but we will also talk about cycling quite a lot. I am your host, Teemu Virtanen, and my guest is really an interesting one, a top coach, uh, Trek Segafredo, coach in cycling, and of course, Team Ramudens, coach. Uh, in long distance skiing and we are talking about Matthias Rick. Good to have you on our so Matthias. How are you doing in this fine morning? I'm fine. Fine, fine. Uh, and that was a nice welcome. So th- <laughs> thank you. I know you've been quite busy lately. So uh, tell us about your life right now. What's going on? Yeah, um, yeah, it's quite busy. Before I was just a cycling coach and then you are pretty much just nervous from February to October, but I guess now that I started also with skiers, that I that I can be a bit nervous all year around. There is always somebody racing. <laughs> In, indeed. Yeah. What about the summer? Has the summer was the summer really good for you? Yeah, it was good. I mean, there was always a lot going on, even though I mean, despite the the pandemic. Uh, the cycling world on the highest level has actually been able to continue more or less as it used to so it means that during the the most intensive season we have more or less three teams competing at the same time so if i take last week for instance we had tour of denmark we had tour of poland and at the same time the vuelta España started plus that our women team they were racing in norway so then you can say that it's quite busy how do you keep yourself intact? I mean, how can you kind of focus on, on everything? You know, if that that's what's going on. Yeah, it's uh, actually <laughs> I cannot really answer that question. I guess it's like you are always you are always online, and you have to try and get some micro recovery every now and then. But that's also who I am. I mean, when I was a teacher uh, way back ten, fifteen years ago. As soon as there was a summer holiday, then already after one or two weeks, I started to think about m- my job anyways. So, so it's kind of in my DNA to constantly uh, work a little bit. So and, it comes natural. And now you're kind of switching your mind and mode uh, into skiing. The ski season is not that far away. No. And, uh, and since we also now have a normal season with r- r- roller skiing races... So that's nice. Indeed it is, but that'll be something we're going to talk about next. And you mentioned your teaching. I normally have this, what I call up close and personal segment towards the end, where 
we kind of reveal the curtain a little bit and uh, find out who my, my guest really is. But I think in your case, we will actually start with that. So that'll be next. We'll learn who Matthias Reck really, really is. <laughs> Interesting, maybe. <laughs> we'll see. So tell us about yourself, your history. How did you get into, you mentioned teaching, but how did you get into coaching first, cycling, and then, of course, uh, cross-country skiing, long-distance skiing? Yeah, maybe it has to do w- w- with my interest in in teaching. I mean, if you are a teacher, then you're at the same time also a coach. And I combined my my interest for long long distance sports even though i didn't i mean i never crossed country skied but i watched it always on television and then i did did cycling but i always liked marathon cross country skiing and so on and then i combined that interest uh, with my teaching because i am uh, i went to the university to be a teacher now m- maybe people think that i studied uh, science in sport, but I didn't. I'm actually a teacher in history, religion, and political science. <laughs> so, so that's a bit that's that's a bit strange. But but I combine my teaching skills and my 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 love for teaching with the love for endurance sports, and that's why I ended up being a cycling coach. Are you still teaching, or just solely focus focus focusing on uh, coaching? For for a long time, I did both. But then, in some kind of m- middle age uh, crisis, when I was around forty, I just went into my boss at the school and said that I, I stop, and then I wanted to try and be a coach full time. You know, you, you come to certain questions. You're already getting old. There is nothing to wait for anymore. So then I just switched. But then. Uh, it was not that I just jumped out in the in the open air. I mean, I was already quite full supported. Uh, I put myself in a difficult spot where I had too much coaching work to do, so it was almost impossible to keep going as a teacher. Were you a teacher at a, what level? High school? I, I tried them all, but in the end, I, I was at high school for adults. So what do we in Sweden call komvuks? Oh, okay. Uh, kind of like adult, so, adult uh, exactly. education center, but you know, yes. high school, high school exactly. studies. And uh, that is my, so my education was for high school level. So since that is your education, that's what you did. What about the, the sports world? And you mentioned that you were already doing it while teaching. So how did that come about? Uh, uh, actually... I did a lot of martial arts when I was younger, and I think I was even better in that than in cycling. But I, I loved cycling more, and it's so far—it's so far way back in my life that I don't even talk about it. But uh, I used to compete in taekwondo and yeah, all different knockout karate, Thai boxing, boxing, a little bit of everything, and I have been two times uh, Swedish champion actually in Taekwondo and was with the national team and so on. But when I was 25, finally my passion for cycling came out and I switched fully to 
cycling and road cycling and was competing until I was <laughs> actually until I was 39. That was a bit too egoistic doing that so long, but I, I could not really stop. That's really interesting that you did competitive sport in martial arts, Taekwondo, as you mentioned, very different. And, and then at the age of 25, you switched and still managed to uh, reach a good level. It's not, not an easy feat to do. I mean, uh, I was very well trained, like in general, but I had I had no clue what I was going into because I actually thought when I looked on television that ah, cycling doesn't look that tough. It should be possible to stay in the bunch and so on. But I was so wrong. It took me two years just to adapt to be able to like follow good good riders in a bunch. There is so much more fighting for positioning than you see on television. So it was a really shock, but I kept fighting. And after two years, uh, I was in the like in the elite rankings, but I never turned. Uh, I, I was never pro. I was never in the national team or something, but I still loved it a lot. I remember one time I was asked, like, what do you like the most, Taekwondo or cycling? And then I said, cycling is so fun. Uh, I rather come last in a cycling competition than win another taekwondo competition. <laughs> so, yeah. But you probably learned to fight. You mentioned <laughs> fighting in cycling, but coming from that world where fighting is everything in martial arts, you must have been a good fighter. I mean, it's different fighting, of course, but yes, uh, uh, I definitely know how to suffer and and uh, that, that kind of stuff. And and cycling is a really tough sport. That I can say, it's really hard. And to go like 60, 70 k, and you have to push and fight for for position. If you don't do it right, then you then you break a collarbone or something. It's a really tough sport. And that I say, even though I also did martial arts. Interesting. Speaking of martial arts, I've never done my, uh, that myself, but I'm assuming that you need quite a lot of control and discipline. Yes. How, how, how much did that kind of background help you when you transferred you know, to endurance sports and then eventually become a coach? The discipline that you got from martial arts. That, that's, a, that's a difficult question that I, that I really would need to, to think about. It's not so easy to, because discipline in, in martial arts can be so much different things but what i can say is that in in all types of of like high level sport it's really important to have discipline to to your goals and to to know what you have to do every day and so on uh, and that of course is something that i brought with me from from my training in Taekwondo, but I think it could also be if I played table tennis and I had the discipline to know what I had to do and to focus on the right things. It's something I that you take with you. And that is also one of the most important thing as a coach. You you have some persons when you coach them that they they sometimes forget what is the most important things. So you have to make really priority. And it, you can, for instance, have an athlete. They, they, 
they get too focused maybe on a diet or something and that 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 becomes the whole thing even though it should maybe only have the priority four or five and that's always something that you have to help as a coach to like keep focus on the most important things that's really good we want to talk about that a little bit later on there the coaching and training and so forth but still kind of sticking to this this theme your your background do you ever miss those days? I mean, it seems to me or sounds to me that martial arts and those days is definitely way in the past. But do you ever get that kind of feeling? Oh, it was fun. Uh, maybe I should do it every once in a while just for fun. Not now anymore because now I already turned 50. But I can tell you that, I mean, uh, I did more, more than one comeback. So I guess that means that that's the answer to the question that it was really difficult to let it go so i competed on pretty high level in both cycling and taekwondo almost too long but as one one uh, classic comment in the cycling world when you are really fed up with with racing your bike you should do one more year just to be sure that you don't stop too early <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, look at uh, Anders Auckland. He's still skiing. He's 48, turning 49. I'm still doing crazy things. I'm yeah. a bit older than you are a couple of years, and I'm still, you know, yeah. you know, it, you never get too old to quit. No, no. <laughs> yeah, that's very, that's very impressive. So maybe I stopped 10 years too early. Exactly. You <laughs> should keep going. Uh, but uh, then, okay, so you got into the cycling after martial arts. Uh, did that? Yeah. that until you were 39 those years did you train yourself and what did you kind of learn from from your own career i did mostly train myself uh, and then i got influence uh, like here and there and i really liked to study i mean even though i am a teacher in religion history political science uh I, I have been trying to read as much as possible when it comes to training, endurance sports, uh, strength, strength training, nutrition, everything. And then, then you build up your knowledge. But I am not a good role model myself because even though I studied a lot, it was still that, that I made a lot of mistakes myself. But it's also something that you can that you can have have with you as a coach uh, and it makes you have more perspective so it's easier to find those like the, the alarm clocks in other persons when they are about to make mistakes themselves yeah you need to make mistakes that's how you learn but would you say that you are a self-made coach or did you take any formal education for that as well no no uh, that i could say that i am self-learned yeah and the the last years when I was cycling, uh, I was like a like a like a coach that was still competing. So so I was already I I was already working as a coach, and then I was in a team, and then I was like the leader and the trainer at the same time as I was competing. And I tried to hang on to the younger guys as long as possible to be some kind of of road captain at the same time. But it was getting harder and harder on the highest level for me. So when I was forty, I had two tough crashes, and then it was then it was time to stop. I could not even help get 
get my little daughter dressed because I was because I had crashed and I didn't and I didn't really have time for that those things anymore. So it was time to quit. So you had too much on your plate. Uh, how did yeah. that that coaching kind of evolve in your case? I mean, you started at, at I'm not talking about the cycling. You started at the age of 25, raised yourself, coached coached yourself. You've your own trainer. How and when did you start getting other people around? And, and how did that kind of transition happen when you kind of realized that actually I'm more of a coach than an athlete myself? Yeah, I think it was that when I was out training, I could not help get interested in what other people do, did. And I told them that this is not right. You should do this instead. So, so I actually took my my coaching character uh, with me uh, a little bit here a little bit there so i i could not help it i just had to to help people and tell them tell them what i thought <laughs> so uh, and then i saw also there were some other companies that that made this a business so i thought also yeah um, maybe i should also start my little business and uh, uh, and that's what happened when i was around 35 years old I was teacher and then on my free time I started coaching a little bit and then year by year the coaching got more the teaching got less and in the end when I was 40 I told my boss that now I will try my wings only coaching and is that when and you had your company the guiding heroes as well or? exactly it started as another company but now we are called guided heroes uh, and I am like a head coach for Guided Heroes, but it started. But but it started a much smaller. It was just me and myself. But now it's now it's growing, and we have all kinds of sports. So it's like both running, triathlon, skiing, cycling, and uh, uh, I am like the head coach that that can always like help the other coaches if they have questions and so on. So I try to, but it's not that they have to think exactly like me. I don't think that's good. And that's also not necessary. But of course, there is some kind of basic, basic fundament that, that we all that we all have. So your services can be obtained by any by athlete, anybody, by anybody. So it's for normal people all the way up to uh, to the highest pros, you can say. Tell me a little That's bit more. That's kind of cool. Yeah, tell me a little bit more about that. That's interesting. So you have this coaching service. Is, that, is it uh, personal that you you mentioned you have a lot of co coaches, or is it more yeah. of a platform that people use? Or yes, uh, I mean, since we have power meters in cycling, uh, and that we had now for yeah almost thirty years, and it has become quite big and popular at least in the last 10, 15 years, there are special platforms that are really good for analyzing files and you can also communicate in them. So it's quite easy to be a coach on a distance, digital. Uh, so, so that is the basic of it. So you could actually coaching somebody from Italy if you want, uh, and it works quite well. And the, Usually as a coach, it's that you're paying for how much contact you get. The more contact, that's what uh, makes it more expensive. But you can also, if you feel that you can like 
you are good in managing yourself that then it doesn't cost so much and then you can have like a like a r- r- real pro trainer writing your schedule but, but then you are on your own and if you feel on the other hand that i need a lot of guiding and coaching and i want to talk with my coach a lot yeah then you have to pay a bit more so that's basically how it works so basically you're saying that you can also get or an athlete or a person can hire you guys more on a kind of a mental capacity as well that you he or she can train on her on his or her own but then you can be kind of in the background behind the scenes controlling a little bit being a bit of a mental uh, mentor yes, type yes of. that you can say and i think that the company is going to grow that that we also have dietists and like mental coaches and everything so, so it's coming step by step and i think it's also starting to be quite a big it's a big business uh, it, it's growing to have like platforms and you have coaches that can be like all around the all around the world that's the only thing that the only thing that is a little bit difficult especially for me if you are a cross-country skier and you want my help i'm available but you cannot ask me if my technique is good <laughs> so normally i am helping skiers that are already quite good in skiing <laughs> speaking of which i mean the skiing side i was going to ask you about that you know how well you mentioned earlier that it works really well you know in cycling but how well based on your experience because you are now coaching skiers and you have this platform how well does it work or how well does skiing fit into the picture yeah uh, i think it's something that we will have to see in the future if i go to sweden then most skiing coaches they have training camps uh, and then you work on technique and for most people it's enough that they just they just have to ski get a little bit better in technique and to just get enough hours skiing but but once you your level becomes better then it's of course also more important exactly how you train not just that you train so so but i think it's something for the future that we will have to see how skiing coaching is going to develop so it's not that i can say that i know it it's something that we have to see but in cycling where technique is not so important the the normal basics for coaching is that the coach tells you which intervals that you should do but i think in skiing until now this kind of business does not really exist so much yet but it will in in the future as you said and it's really yes. interesting to see that you are at the cutting edge of the, of the kind yeah. of technological change because i strongly believe in it as well uh, because everything has you know changed due to the fact that you know the digitalization and transformation and all that the world is changing so why not the the world of sports and particularly coaching uh, yeah. all that needs to change in the future and it's good to see that you are really active in that field and- and also like even though it's easier in cycling because you can measure power and it means that every second after every training there is a file if they are out for four hours then you have power measuring every second for four hours 
and you can see exactly what happens. You have heart rate, you have heart rate variability, you have yeah, temperature, altitude, power, everything, plus their, their feeling. So there is quite a lot of information that you get, even if you're sitting up here in Sweden. Five minutes after they come to the finish in a Tour de France stage, they go into the bus, the bus has Wi-Fi, the file is uploaded, and I can see it here in Sweden. And I think once the the power measuring in poles in skiing is going to be a bit more common, plus that you have the ski egg and so on. And also if you go on, on a treadmill uh, on skiing, then you can also count exactly what power you're doing. So I think in the future, there will also be more easier ways to monitor training in skiing. Indeed. So it all kind of boils down to the collection yes. of data. Because heart rate is is one way of monitoring things, but it's really not it's really not uh, enough. There needs to be more, and power is definitely one of the most important ones. I'm not saying that heart rate isn't good. There are things that you can do with heart rate, but it's also limited. So when you have both power and heart rate, it's a lot better. And it will come. It is, it is. I mean, of course, it's a little bit difficult to, to measure power in while you're skiing. You mentioned the, uh, the ski ergo and, and the treadmills, you know, of course, in those cases, it works much better. But when you're out there skiing, how do you measure power and the watts and then things like that, like yeah. you can do in, in, uh, in cycling? But it'll change. I mean, we will, there are a lot of companies working on it, uh, working exactly. on to, to getting data from, you know, the kind of the power you use and the energy and so forth. Yeah. Uh, it's, and, it's very... uh, uh, and I guess that we are coming to this subject a bit later, but 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 it really makes a bit different, big difference in how you see training and training zones, and what you can monitor once you have power, because if you go to heart rate, after I, I like intensity zones up to VO2 max, that's more or less the only thing that that is common if you only have heart rate, but you can do do training that is harder than VO2 max, but it's it's something that that you cannot see if you only train with a heart rate. And even if you can sit and think about it, yes, of course, if I do 10 seconds all out, it's harder, but still it takes time to really get it in your head. So uh, like in Sweden, the zones are called A1, A2, A3, and then A3 plus. But there is nothing harder. So there is a lot of things that will be called A3+, but it should actually be called A4 or A5. And even if you can rationally say, yes, I understand, bottom line, it takes time to understand it, exactly what it means. And that's why, uh, 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 and that's why power meters are so important because they, they get you, they are like, uh, they open your eyes on exactly how much time you actually spend in zones above VO2 max. And that's very interesting. And I think in Norway, they have a scale that goes up to uh, five, even even to eight, but they have a little bit more, a little yes. bigger scale there. And, and, and also lactate is something. That's that the scale help. that is very good. Uh, like in Norway, I, I mean, that, that you also have in Sweden from like intensity zone one to eight, but normal. The normal in skiing, uh, 
at least in Sweden, is that they only use four. A1 to A3, A3 plus is the last zone, and it's only, and that one is built around heart rate, but it should be better to use all the zones up to eight, because then you have also the anaerobic zones. And you are much more in an anaerobic state in a race than you actually think, but you cannot see it in the heart rate. That's really interesting. Well, we'll talk about that in more more detail, as you said. Yeah. But let's finish up the kind of the up close and personal segment uh, about you. So then, this is kind of what you do now, your career, you and how uh, you studied, and uh, you were a teacher. For, from there, you uh, yeah. transferred into coaching and so forth. Uh, what about family? You mentioned a daughter. So yes, I have uh, I have a wife and two children. They are now just like I am getting older than. My children also, they are 14 and 17. My son has been, uh, been been training handball, so no cycling, but actually now now lately has been very motivated to to start some cycling. So we we will have to see. I started with 25 and he is starting with 17. So <laughs> he's ahead of you. Yeah, yeah, he's ahead of me. And uh, yes, speaking about the the coaching and so on, uh, I think I was lucky because I started my company when I was 35 and then I was not so good myself in seeing where I was going but I had some important people around me that that had ideas to what what should fit me and they gave me the opportunity to to have some some nice cooperations and I uh, I believe that I'm quite good in what I'm doing, and I'm disciplined to uh, to make a good job, uh, and that made it so. In a few years, I was actually then a pro trainer. I started in a team called Giant Alpesin. It's the team that is now Team DSM. Last year it was Sunweb, and after a few years there, I followed one of the big stars, uh, John Degenkolb at that time, and I went to Trek Segafredo. And that's where I have been now since 2017. Uh, and I feel so good there that I have now actually just a few days ago signed a new contract for two more years. So, so you I'm like very the team. happy with that. You really yes, like, I do. Tell, tell me about yes. the team. Why do you like it so much? Like many people say, if you have good people to work with, that's the most important uh, and that is what I like in this team. It's a really good atmosphere, both between the riders and between the staff. And and it they also gave me the possibility to work part-time because otherwise it would not be possible to have this kind of job. It, 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 it's a crazy world, this cycling world. Most people, they have to travel 180 to 200 days a year. If you go to the Tour de France, then you usually go Tuesday before and you are not home until Tuesday after so it's like four weeks away then you're home home one week and then you have to go to tour of Poland another 10 days and that's how it goes the whole year and that was not possible for me and they accepted that I could work part-time and that's also why I have this kind of double life that I uh, international uh, then I'm a cycling coach but at home it was possible to now become like a 
like a pro trainer in uh, in cross country skiing, which I think is very cool. How did the team Ramudin then come about? Um, yeah, it was actually that I was giving a lecture up north in Östersund. It's now uh, two and a half, three years ago, and I did not know it myself, but there were quite a few cross-country skiers that were that were listening also it was a cycling club that that brought me there but it was open to everybody i was at the university and this guy max novak uh, contacted me afterwards and said that i think that this type of training could also be possible to do in skiing and i remember also when i was talking about it i also said that yeah, this is how we do in cycling, and I'm sure that that uh, it, it's also possible to do things in skiing. And then I showed some power files and said that just wait till skiers can have power, then they will also have a shock, just like we had in cycling 20 years ago, and so on. And uh, yeah, I was not uh, I was not really so helpful in the beginning because I had a lot to do, and I did not know if I could help him. So I was. Yeah, I said yes, but nothing really happened, and that was because of me. Uh, but he kept asking in in a nice way. So after a while, I said, "Okay, yes, let's uh, le- let's see what's possible," and that's how it started. And then you expanded. Now you have pretty much the whole team. Yes, deciding. after after the first year, then Gura uh, Gura Korsken and, uh, and Lena they were asking me if I could if I could join and then I didn't hesitate a bit. So I said, yes, to me, I said, yes, immediately. It was nice. And we will talk about that as well, a little bit more once we uh, get into the coaching side things and training, training and, uh, and your specific trainings for a team Ramudin and, and cross country skiing. So if uh, you want one, if you want one last personal thing, it just came to mind. Good. Um, how am I as a coach? What is my personality as a coach? Uh, I would say that if you can be more mathematical or you can be be more of the like, like r- r- relation social, then I am definitely not the mathematical one. It's something that I have to fight with to get into this with power measuring and so on. But uh, But after a while, then you get used to it. But I am definitely more the the, I, I would say, like a typical history, religion, political science teacher. So fighting, fighting to get the numbers right. Well, that's a good uh, analysis and a good description of you as a, as a coach. Uh, and I think next we will start talking about training and coaching in more detail. That'll be next. Now we know who you are, pretty much, and, and kind of your history, how you became a coach. Let's start with the cycling first, and then we move from there to skiing, and then we co- combine, compare these two different sports. Different, but then again, there are certain principles that are alike. But cycling world, you, you mentioned earlier this crazy world. I mean, you travel so much and all that, but... yeah. There is really a lot of racing, and even though it has gone down a bit, if you go back maybe 10, 20 years, 
almost every pro was racing 90 to 100 and if you go back even more race days now it has gone down a little bit maybe i would say between 70 to 80 and but it doesn't mean that you are home it means that you are going more to training camps altitude camps and so on so so it's it is definitely very taking for the rider and the staff that you are always on the road so in that sense it's a bit bit crazy compared to how normal people live i guess and if you race that or if they race that much you're constantly focusing on that how much can you really train and the training has to be very specific because of course racing is always or at least most of the time very intensive if it's something that you are good good in as a cycling coach it is to it is to plan a good racing schedule and to know how to like combine racing resting and training because just like you said racing is hard even if you are like the big leader and you go to a february february race to prepare for march or april and it's just there for training even if you try to hide from the wind all the time and you get help it's still quite intensive there are no easy races anymore so you really have to find a good way to balance it and it's not possible to it's not possible to leave too many people at home to just train all the time because it's a pro sport and you have to show yourself and you have to be there plus that it's actually quite good training to do races especially stage races and that's also why there are so many stage races if stage racing was shit to build shape then they would eventually also be tougher to to get people do them but if you do do training in the right way and then you have a good block uh, of hard training but you do it in a state race and then you get back and you have a rest and then you make a new build up it, it works really well and that's also what i try to do sometimes i'm now with with skiers actually that we build up with like state race training but there are no state races for us so they would have to do the state race training themselves to make it like to to make this periodization uh, uh, and what do you say like a block like a really tough block sometimes mm-hmm. so it's something that i took from cycling so why why is stage training let's call it that way is, is so effective yeah that's it's it's a good question there are not so there's not so much science about it but at least a little i cannot say that there is a strong evidence that block periodization is working but there is also praxis and things like cycling is a really conservative sport and it means that there comes a certain praxis and that praxis on one hand it evolves because it works if it doesn't work then it will then it then it will eventually go away so i think that is what we are seeing here that there is a system that works on the other hand sometimes tradition can be so strong that it doesn't let new things in so it's always a balance but i think that these things 
shows that it's a good way to to build shape. Normally, the worst thing for shape is to do one-day races, a lot of travel, and a lot of rest, because you have to rest, travel, one-day race, and then you have to rest, travel, one-day race again. Then there is not this big block of training. It's just one-day races and rest. So what you want to do is to find places to have a really good big blocks of uh, of training or state racing and then you can do a few big one-day races like in cycling it's like this in february there are short state races in march there are bigger state races and after that you have built up the shape and then you do all the big one-day races milano san remo etre haralbeke kent wevelgem flandern paris roubaix but you cannot continue with only doing one day races so many weeks then you have to have a block of like big block of training again and that's why i am sure that some people they have seen that because in in cross country skiing if i go to visma classic it is like every weekend there is racing but if you just do racing in the weekend and then quite little in the weeks after a while the shape will go down so it's important to find moments during the season to to really keep the 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 build-up training going and that's why at some points i put in quite a lot of training in between the races that's very interesting and i think a big realization happened to many of our uh, long distance skiers pro team athletes when we had the two races back to back and that was the first time this season that was cool yes yes that and was they, really cool a lot of people a lot of, <laughs> of skiers were really surprised that they did so well the second day yeah so which kind of goes hand in hand with uh, what you just said is that it, it takes some it takes some time but then you realize it i mean if you go to a normal new a, new, a normal newspaper paper then somebody can say like a doctor or something yeah it's not possible to do this and this and like the the tour de france they they need to rest every second day this is not possible blah 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 but i can tell you since we have power measuring we know exactly what happens and the cool thing is if you go to the big gc riders that the, that ride for the, like the top 10 the power that they can produce the first week and the last week is almost the same the heart rate goes down more or less 10 percent if they have a maximum heart rate of 200 the first week it's down to 180 in the last week but power differs almost nothing it's more like uh, it's a little bit day by day, but it's a few percent, very little. And that makes you understand that you can train quite hard in blocks and you can also do do racing several days. You just have to prepare for it. I'm, it's kind of cool. Yeah, I'm definitely going to sign this. I'm definitely going to agree with you because as you as you know, I did the, you know, the across Finland, 10 days of roller skiing, really extensive legs every day. And... I felt really good. I mean, actually, my best day was uh, there, like the eighth day when we went really fast. Same thing happened to me. My heart rate went down, but my powers, I I couldn't measure my power, but I felt really strong. And I felt that I was really strong towards the end. So it's... 
And this is something that I think, I still think it's difficult to scientifically answer why, let's say you have a straight race of five, five days, why are you extra good stage two and four, a little bit bad day three, uh, and super day five? Because it's, it can sometimes differ. Some riders differ more between their off and on days, and some are very stable. But I, I still haven't like, found a good scientific answer f- for why you are suddenly bad day three and then good again day four. Because normally, then you would think you get a little bit more tired eventually. But like you said, suddenly day seven, you're really good. <laughs> So it's uh, yeah, it's a bit strange. And of course, we then when we talk about these kind of things and blocks and extreme uh, uh, efforts, we also talk about the super compensation quite a lot as well. So that takes place quite often that you do something extremely tough, yeah. recover, yeah. and then you do even better following. But then, of course, if you do traditional cross country skiing, then then I understand it's a bit more diff- difficult because they are having World Cups like almost every weekend, just like Visma Classic. But in Visma, at least you you are out racing two, three, three hours. So 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 it's quite a lot. But if you do, if you go to the World Cups, then you maybe have to fly out Wednesday or Thursday. You're you're shaking material. There is sprint, and then you have a fifteen k. Uh, and then you cannot fly home until Monday, maybe. So it's quite little training, a lot of traveling. And if you do that week out, week in, it it becomes difficult to have enough training. So so, so it's a bigger challenge for them than it is for a Visma ski classic uh, skier, I think. And then it's quite you have a- to find the moments. Exactly, and then it's quite amazing that someone like Bolshunov can stay in in great shape throughout the season. Yes. Yes, definitely. And I think, I mean, what what I would do is that then you find the good spots and then maybe you can stay stay out instead of going home at one point and then you can do a good block of training Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, for instance, like three, four hours easy, three days in a row. It will definitely not affect the next weekend. For, for some people, I think they will just be even better. And then you have also the problem with Tour de Ski, because if you do a lot of World Cup races every weekend, then the moment for you to train, yeah, then comes Tour de Ski. And Tour de Ski, there is also not a lot of training. I mean, it's a lot of short, and it's a lot of traveling, and it's not easy to, to do extra training during the race days. So, so, so it's definitely more challenging there. But isn't the Tour de Ski uh, kind of like a block uh, in itself as well? Because they're racing so many days in a row. Definitely. But I cannot see it as as a good training block in the same way as in cycling. I mean, if you, I, I can take a popular state race in February for a pro rider, Tour de Algarve, for instance. Then you are, it's five days. Every day you can race five hours. Sometimes you can even ride home to the hotel afterwards, and then you have six or seven hours. And when you come home, you had like a block of like 25, 30 hours. If you go to Tour de Ski, I would say it's mostly to make results. It's difficult 
to build shape because there's so much traveling and everything is short and it's difficult to train extra. That is my opinion now. I mean, I, I am not fully into it, but the way I see it now, it's a bit more difficult to have it as a good buildup. So in a nutshell, would you say that uh, someone, something like that, you know, the Tour de Ski is too, uh, the competitions, the races are too short, too intensive, yes. too sprint-like. And that's why, yeah. and that's why I, I think also that, that you can see that people opt for leaving it out sometimes. If it was a, if it was a pro rider, you would never leave out a good state race to get in shape for a world championships, for instance. But in, but in skiing, then you can can really see that in championship years, that they discuss should I go to tour to ski or not. In cycling, it's 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 totally different. People just discuss instead: should I go to Tour of Britain or should I go to Bink Bank Tour? Should I take Poland or should I take uh, some other race? Everybody is searching for good good state races to build the shape. There is nobody that would say, no, I just go home and train uh, uh, and then I do five one-day races to get in shape. No, everybody wants like good state races. Some even do Vuelta España to get in shape for the World Championships. So in that sense, it's, it is quite crazy. Really interesting. Now we have established the first big difference between skiing and yeah. cycling, which is that in, in, in the cycling world, you guys or the athletes, uh, riders, they use competitions or t races or, st yes. or the stores to build up their shape, which they yes. don't do as much. Of course, competitions work as a as a training for skiers as well, but not in the same same level at the or in the same way as as for no. cyclists. But of course, it's important that between the state races, there should be enough recovery, and then you then you mostly do easy, basic, what you could call junk miles between the state races. Because if you do state race and then you come home and then you start doing hard intensity efforts and then you go to the next state race. Then most likely, you get tired, or the shape goes down too early. So, so there always has to be a balance. Normally, even though it's not scientifically spoken out or, or, or tested, but it is usually common, common known in cycling that you conserve and stabilize shape with basic endurance. The more intensity you put in, the faster the shape comes and also goes away. So if you do a good block of training and then you have some races and you're on a good way, then you actually don't need to train so hard between the state races. So then you put in mostly easy endurance and that will stabilize and conserve your shape. So it keeps going from February to March to the big goals, for instance, in April. So that's also why, yeah, sorry. Yeah, let's dig a bit deeper into that uh, kind of the recovery process and yeah. also the re uh, days off or the rest days. Some athletes tend to have rest day once a week or whatever, or even have rest days. Some don't have any rest days. I'm kind of, at mm -hmm. least uh, for the past two years, I've only had a day off, but I have easy days. I might do just the circuit training, easy run. So what's your sort of opinion do about rest days because sometimes people just do them because they feel because it's kind of a habit 
to have a day off. But yeah. do we always need a day off? Is an so-called active recovery even better? Um, I don't think that, um, what do you say, uh, normally I, I always have a rest day. I mean, uh, and even if some person say that, yeah, it's not it's not needed or something, then usually it's always good to have a rest day, both for the head and to get the the body to understand that rest is also part of the training. But if somebody argues, yeah, if I just go on feeling, I can sometimes train 10 days in a row that they are, then they are probably right. But it's nothing that I make too much thing of. One day of rest is all is probably always good. And if you do one hour easy or just lie in bed, it's more a personal thing. Uh, for some that are like almost addicted, it can be good as a coach to demand. It's compulsory not to not to do any sport. But it's more if you have somebody that is really addicted, then they then they should sometimes also have two rest. They just to be extra pain in the ass that they understand that they <laughs> that, they, that they need to need to take take it easy sometimes, and then they should take a walk instead of taking the running shoes if it's a rest day. That's really interesting. You know, that's that's so. As I said, it's, it's a kind of a hot potato. A lot of people, you know, talk about that. Let's let's. Yeah, but 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 if I should say also, in cycling, maybe we are over estimating the value of periodization and block periodization and there is a bigger difference between easy days and easy weeks and hard weeks what i found out in skiing i mean there is a lot of different ways to do in skiing also but from what i know now i have the feeling that if you give somebody an easy week and you start with giving them two easy days they are not used to it it's like they never rest two days in a row. But in cycling, it's quite common. If you have a really big hard block of training, then, then of course, it's good to have an easy week. And to start an easy week by training already after one, one rest day, to me, is a little bit, yeah, it's not necessary. But it works well in skiing to always just have one day rest so i guess maybe i have to <laughs> maybe i have to switch opinion but until now i usually do it like two easy days to start with after a really hard block let's talk about that a little bit more let's take a closer look at that because i know that yeah based on what i've seen on on, on online some of your tips or uh, training programs they have like this the three days three day blocks that you have, for example, you can have a power day, then a, a hard, long training, and then the third day is an easy long training, for example. Yes. These are kind of examples that I've found online. Yeah, that's, uh, a, that's, a, that's a good example. I, I must have said that. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's you. And another one here, it says that you have, uh, for example, of course, I'm reading Swedish now, translated into English, as a power day, uh, strength training, one hour, then three hours, uh, where you have short sp uh, uh, sprints, six to ten uh, seconds. That was the first day. Then the second day, two, uh, five hours, and an intensive uh, distance training. Uh, and then the day number three, an another long training, five to six hours. But it's, uh, again, really easy, but some sprints. 
another. And then the fourth day, as you said, is a rest day. Is another example yeah. that you have given. Yes, that uh, the example when I do three days training and one day rest, then you then you are on such a high volume that after three days it's necessary to have a rest day. It's not that I use. I mean, you have to train quite a lot during those three days that it's necessary to have a rest day. But like in a big training camp or something. This is quite common in cycling that you do three days and then one day off. What I found, it's once again, when I came into cross-country skiing, I did not know how cross-country skiers were training. There are, of course, differences, but there is usually also like a general praxis. And that praxis has evolved during time because it works. So just like I said in cycling, there is something that works, but sometimes it also makes for a hard, hard tradition, and it's not always easy to get new influences. So, so that's where I am. Also, I don't want to change too much just because I want to change, and things are there for a reason. But I would say that when I look at some some things now, ones that I know more about cross country skiing is that. I think that cycling has a bit more systematic approach and it's maybe overestimated if it's necessary but that's how it is like I can some 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 influences I have seen in cross country skiing to me it's a little bit yeah it is not uh, it's like yeah there can be the first day there is 4 hours a1 and then the second day is this i mean uh, i cannot sometimes i cannot see the red line maybe there is one uh, and i don't understand it and maybe it's also not so so necessary but in cycling it is usually like this day 1 is a day that you have more focus on power because it's a day that is not going to tire you like short explosive stuff like sprints impulses and not too hard intervals you you combine it with strength training in the gym then the second day you are still like good recovered then you do the hardest training and then the third day is like long easy endurance and then of course you are going to be able to pick it up and put in a little bit little bit more here and there but that's like the basic and if the third day is easy enough then you can start on the new day one again with this power injections uh, that is not a really hard training uh, and then you can actually do this two three day blocks in a row so it's six days and then you take a rest day if you do it in a camp and you do it more and harder then you rest after three days but this is normally how it is in cycling that it's built up quite a lot systematic what do we do day one and and there's a special there's a special reason for having this day one and not day two so but it's something that i'm trying to learn how they do it in skiing and so on but but when i came i had an idea what i wanted to, to do and i didn't look too much what they had done before and i just did the same with the skiers as I did in cycling. And it, it actually seems to work quite well. But is there anything that you 
could say that had influenced you. I mean, anything from the skiing world, the ski training that has influenced you or ha- has op- opened up your eyes. And, ah, okay, this is something. Uh, this is kind of interesting. We actually don't do this in the in the cycling world because, as you mentioned, can, yeah. some things are you know they 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 proven to work. Yes, <laughs> I mean, I can say that I think that cyclists are in general too afraid of do other things than cycling. I I also understand why because even if you want to keep up with with running and power training during the season, once you do two week-long state races in February, it starts getting difficult to keep everything up and then it's too long between things. So it's easier for when you help normal recreational riders here in Sweden, for instance, it's easier to keep up alternative training a a year long. It's more difficult for a pro. But I definitely think that cyclists should have even stronger upper bodies and they should, for instance, they should run a bit more. And then uh, I am not so focused on technical things. I was not in Taekwondo. I am not in cycling and also not in skiing. But I am, all, I am always very impressed when I see skiers. The technique is so difficult. I tried it a few times. I even fall. So that's very impressive. And if I was more interested in technique, I think I could, could learn a lot on how you focus on technique training in skiing. But since I don't know it, I am just sitting there being impressed. <laughs> it is a very technical sport, you're right. I mean, of course, cycling and running yeah. as well, but maybe not as much as uh, cross-country skiing, even double polling, even if it looks sim- simple enough, but it's not really that simple, uh, very effective, no. uh, energy-sufficient double polling. Exactly. And uh, and also, it's like a total new world with with like if you don't have the exact right material of skis that is picked especially and that you have the right material and the right wax under you it can also influence in cycling i mean you have the same tires for three weeks in the tour if it's raining or not i mean there is too little differences maybe Maybe that's something that cycling can learn also, because it's really like, it doesn't matter what terrain. The only time that you switch tires is if you have a really, really shitty road, like in Paris-Roubaix or Flanders, Tour of Flanders. But that's maybe one day in a Tour de France. Otherwise, it's the same all the time. R- rain or sunshine. Yeah, that it's, uh, yeah, you're right. I mean, it's the... You would assume that they would change tires, you know, like uh, they do in, in car racing, you know, depending on the depending exactly. on the weather. So I guess it has too little influence, or, or it's not developed enough yet. Some things they on some things there can be invested a lot of time and money, like in a wind tunnel and the right tires for a time trial. But once you're out on the normal road stages. It is usually day out, day in the same for the whole year. Maybe sometimes a little bit different, but but it's really, and I'm sure that in the future there will be more, there will be be more switches depending on the, I mean, I guess it's different depending where the roads are, if it's in the north or in the south, or if if it's rough or not, it should also be different. 
Indeed, oh. indeed. That's that's a good point. Uh, now we have talked about your plug training and we established uh, your kind of your formula, which is the three days of of uh, really constructed uh, workouts and then the day off. But let's take a look at the individual in in cycling. I'm really interested in in knowing what you guys do. For example, your uh, power. Let's take this one example that is the power day. Then you have the long, uh, long hard training and then the easy training well the easy training i think it is just go out there and and ride but the for example the power day what does it really include what kind of what kind of session is that and then the the long training which is the hard long training the intensive long training how is that constructed or structured yeah uh, the the power day is actually quite quite easy to explain because it's it it's normally gym work. And if you look to science, then it's quite, today there is no question at least that that a bit heavier explosive power training is good for endurance also. So it's not only good for sprints or for anaerobic capacity, it's also good for endurance. But you also have to be aware that for some riders, it helps more and for some less, but you still, but you still do it because it is, it is never negative. You don't have to be afraid that your VO2 max or your density of mitochondria and capillaries is going to is going to sink. So, so it's always good to have a strong body, and that especially for a cyclist that is sitting thousand hours in a very strange position on a bike, and then you combine it with some low cadence work to activate the muscles and then you usually do different types of sprints sometimes seated sometimes standing different gears uphill fast depending on where in the season you are and this day is very important for endurance uh, sports because endurance sports it it's quite it's quite uh, what do you say catabolic a draining doing five, six hundred hours, just easy endurance. So it's important to have this kind of power injection, anabolic uh, buildup. So I always think it's good to sometimes put in these sprints and power training and it works well together and it, it is not a tiring day. Normally after a day like this, then you just feel hungry for, for, for more, you could say. So for in, in in terms of skiing, then the correlation could be to do short double pulling sprints and hot uphills, things like that. Yes, yes. Uh, and I mean, uh, in cycling, you have something called uh, power endurance or strength endurance intervals. Uh, in German vocabulary, it's called Kadrei, and it's basically big gear riding uphill but it actually has nothing to do with strength because if you can even if you take the biggest gear that you have and you ride up a mountain for three four five minutes it's not really strength you can just imagine how little weights you would have on the on the rack if you want to do if you want to do squats for three four minutes so it's actually not but i guess it's a lack of words so it's called strength endurance but it's an endurance exercise, a bit more tension on the muscles, scientifically diff difficult to say if it works, but it's quite common in cycling anyway. And if I would divide it over, I mean, if I would 
make the same kind of thing in skiing it would be it would be like heavy friction uh, roller skis trying to make a really long big technique but it's also not easy if you go uphill because it makes them shorter so 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 it's not as, as easy as in cycling but to try to make it like heavy strong muscle not so much heart rate and that, so that's the power then the second that, day that's of, the power. Of, yeah of our example which is then the, the hard long long yes. and hard training exactly what do you and guys do what, on, what do cyc yes. uh, cyclists do the cyclists i mean in december camp when it's still very very long to the season then you would do it easier probably like very controlled threshold work and then once you get into january it can be harder more dynamic intervals uh, and and 40 20s and 30 30s and so on because there is racing in february and you have to come prepared because otherwise the racing is going to kill you instead of build you up so there was actually quite a lot of high intensity intervals in the january camp and from my experience you don't have to be afraid of putting in high intensity intervals in build up as long as you understand that most of the training should be just basic endurance then you there is never a problem to have like a really hard 4020s also for a skier in the middle of the summer no problem at all just as long as you don't overdo it so so you take it gradually it can by the way be interesting to know that cyclists they they usually have the rest period in october like middle to end of october depending a bit on which is their last race but they start somewhere in november mid november already in january when we do some testing in january they are very good most of them can actually do their peak power they cannot do it after 5 hours because that comes a bit later but if you just go out and do 20 minute all out or 5 minute all out already in january it's possible and that is done even if they mostly just do basic endurance training some controlled intervals power training and so on so it's really because sometimes i hear that yeah you cannot you cannot focus so much on the roller ski uh, season if you want to be good in the winter and as a cycling coach that's a bit strange to hear because i think it's actually quite good to have this kind of periodization that you that you start training in may and then in august september it's actually quite good to have something different a new stimuli and a skier is going to be in good shape in august no matter what he is doing even if you just do basic endurance or if you try to ride it a little bit harder uh it's it's no problem to do some some racing the shape is going to be there uh, anyway the difference is just how are you going to, to to get in shape so 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 i see it as a no problem the day two depends a little bit on when in the season i mean if it's a december camp for a cyclist he has only been training around four weeks when we come to 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 that camp so when we were when we do intensity it would normally be like below 
and on threshold, not anything else. Yeah, maybe there is a small race and there is like a short 40-20 session or something, but I would say that 90% is just basic endurance and the other 10% is is not too hard intensity. But when already when we come to the January camp, then this day too can be quite hard because you have to get prepared for the racing that starts end of January, February, and to be able to handle the state races in a good way, it's it's important to have some intensity in the camp. You you usually don't have to worry if you have some intensity in the buildup. Would you say some people they are afraid of some some lactic acid, but to my experience, it is not a problem as long as as long as you don't overdo it and as long as you don't do it all the time. I I think it's actually a good injection to have it a little bit now and then. So I do it also in with the cross-country skiers that they sometimes have really hard sessions even in the summer. So would you say that this day two, the long, hard training, is kind of like the Vasalop Pass the skiers do, that they do the five-hour 90K, 100K uh, training, but they have sprints and intervals built within? Yes, you could say it like that. But I do not know exactly how hard those Vasa because I have seen some that they are they are really really hard very early. For us, it it would probably be a five hour ride within total one hour intervals. It it's not like we are bearing our, ourselves doing hard intervals for three four hours. So so it's still quite conservative, I would say. It could be maybe because the reason why skiers are doing that is that I don't know about the cycling. You can actually correct me if I'm wrong, but in skiing, at least Visma Ski Classics, uh, quite often they they tend to start really fast, uh, and and then just to kind of find their positions and things like things like that. So and or sometimes the speed is really high uh, from the get go. So that I I think that's why they kind of try to do these intervals quite early on in a long uh, session like that. Maybe in cycling yeah. they start uh, a little I bit mean, easier. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I mean. Sometimes uh, racing in cycling is from the gun also, but but in training, people are uh, people like to take it easy. It is it is a typical training session for a cyclist is that you you start by by riding at least thirty forty five minutes just easy, and then you come to a part where you do do the intervals, and then maybe you you have some intervals in hour two, and then you have some intervals in hour four, and then you the last hour it's easy back to the hotel so there is no special focus on doing hard interval really early just because in the races sometimes it's really early so but maybe we should yes indeed that's it so you're always learning (laughs) exactly and then uh day three the easy day three easy easy yes. long training that's the, i assume the, the then it's mostly yeah then it's like i said it's usually just long easy sometimes a little bit e- e- easy intervals and it's quite normal that you put in some short sprints in the end of the ride because it it helps you keep keep in a good mood and keep you fresh it it, it it triggers some hormones which will make you feel 
would you say, almost like a bit recovered. So if people are getting tired after three, four hours, let them do some sprints and then they will start talking and joking again. It sounds strange, but it works. You have to try it if you didn't do it yet. Okay. The audience, the audience listening. So exactly, that's there. You go. Yeah. You can. Uh, yeah, good, good tips, good advice. Uh, there. Yeah. So let's talk about the the cyc- cyclist, the, the riders' season. It's a very different from from ours because we are. It's a winter sport, and you guys main, yeah. mainly race in the summertime. But of course, you have stages in the winter, as you have now established. Uh, but it starts, yeah, the, I guess, October. The, from October, then you kind of change. New season starts. The season is now very long. The last races are usually like in the middle of October, and then, okay, for the last uh, year there was no Tour Down Under in Australia. But normally, Tour Down Under goes in the middle of January, and that's a World Tour race, and. That also means that the riders that have the longest season in October, they should not do tour the down under because then there is no real time to race and prepare it and so on. So 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 usually the riders that have to go to tour down under, they have their last race end of September to have a a real build up when they go to uh, to tour the down under because it's a lot of traveling and it's it is usually it's usually if you want to do results and tour down, down under because it's so hot and a lot of people stay in Australia to really train. So it's a very hard race. You have to have your peak values if you want to do good in down under. It is not, it is not the holiday if you really want to do well. So it has to be prepared in a good way. But for most of the riders, it starts training like slowly middle November and racing starts in February. And uh, then what about VO2 max? That's, of course, kind of the traditional measurement of a endurance athlete's yeah. capacity. Uh, and, of course, it's a known fact that cross-country skiers tend to have, uh, you know, the highest highest VO2 max. Yes. Although I think the, the, the world highest is actually a young Norwegian that's done way back, uh, a, a cy- yes. cyclist. Oscar Svensson. Yes, exactly. Unfortunately, I think he stopped now uh, two years ago or something. But I think he was like world champion junior time trial, and then it also came out his high, the high values and so on. I don't think he was as as effective. So I think it was a little bit like, like you can see in runners, the runners that have a really high efficiency, they have less VO two. and vice versa. So if it was possible to combine a person with the highest VO2 and the highest efficiency, they would run like a, a, a marathon of 150. So, uh, and uh, and I think it was the same with with Oscar Svensson. But okay, go back to cross-country skiers and VO2 max. Indeed. So uh, that's kind of the measurement. But as you just pointed out, there have been a lot of skiers with really high VO2 max still, they haven't really been the greatest skiers. 
uh, and then some have like Bjorn Daly had really a high high VO2 yeah. uh, to max and he was one of the best and still one of the, the greatest of all times but kind of the importance of, of the VO2, VO2 max and how much do you need that for long distance skiing slash uh, cycling people tend to say that oh you don't need that high VO2 max for cycling or uh, for long distance skiing as you do for example for uh, traditional cross country skiing and what are kind of the examples of the, the effective training methods to to, to raise that big and can you raise that so much I mean it's it's kind of tend to be a, a a born ability I mean um, how should I start I think if we start with with the, the different types of sports and if you go to cycling there are it's a very big big spectra you can be a world star rider weighing over 80 kilos and be a good sprinter and then maybe your vo2 uh, divided with your body weight is maybe not higher than 70 and you are still like a world star then you can be a climber and you have a a vo2 of maybe 85 and you are also a world world champion and then you can have the spectra in between. If you are a strong classic rider, then you maybe have 75 to 80, and you win a lot of sprints in smaller groups on a tough, uh, tough circuit. So th- there are all kinds of different uh, levels. I- I- in skiing, I-, I think it's a little bit more narrow. And and um, but I mean, everybody, nobody says no to a high threshold, and nobody says. N- no to a good VO2 max, <laughs> but I think it is quite, it is quite, it's quite genetic where you're going to end up. And on the level that I am coaching the most, and what we are talking about now, there is enough uh, training that I don't think, I mean, they will end up with the VO2 max that they can, because if you train 800 hours or something, it will not make a a special difference if you train five times five or if you do uh, six times eight or something i mean they're they are going to end up with the highest vo2 max that they can anyway i think it's more interesting for people that don't have so much time then i think it can be be more interesting exactly which intervals are you going to squeeze out on tuesday and thursday or something to to have the highest possible VO2 max in a short time. So what could they be for those people? I'm, I'm assume there are a lot of people out there listening to this, thinking, how can yes. I raise up my VO2 max? And I don't have that much time. I can uh, train eight or nine yeah. hour, uh, 900 hours a year. Yeah. Yes. Uh, the last years, they have seen uh, the very, 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 very latest science on this. I would say is, I mean, first of all, I have to say, it's assumed that you want to collect as many minutes as possible above, uh, let's say, 90% of maximum heart rate. But it's still not really established that that is the most important to to raise VO2 max. But it's still like, it's assumed that the really hard intervals where you collect minutes, and I'm saying minutes because it's quite hard. So it's not hours, it's minutes. And the interval types that can can collect as many minutes as possible on 
very close to VO2 max would then be the best. And lately, they have compared like, let's say five times five minutes compared to uh, straight five minutes, like equal intensity, just hard all the time, compared to starting a bit faster to get the engine going quickly. And then they could ease up and take it a bit easy the last three and a half minutes. And in the end, the ones that started fast to get the VU2 up, they could send, they could then ride on that wave without having to push that hard. Meaning in the end that they could maybe do one more interval. So to speak, there is some kind of tail effect when you start fast. And another one is also that if you have a straight five minute uh, and the other one is a little bit more dynamic that you put in some short spikes or bumps during the five minutes. In total, the average power is the same, but the ones with spikes and bumps, they could also collect more time on VO2 max. And they are also a bit more race specific because in, in racing, either in skiing or in cycling, it's never steady. So I think once the buildup comes to a higher uh, higher level and you need to to like tweak it more to get even better and prepare yourself for racing then i think it's always good to have the intervals a little bit more dynamic it, it, it's the same as if you do 30 15s or 40 20s there is also science saying that that those work really well to up the pace and also makes your hard work really well so a bit more dynamic i would say so when you say dynamic you mean as you just said that you don't have the same stable pace of uh, you know speed all the way through the five minute yes. interval you yes. change it a little bit you might start fast and you're gonna slow down a tiny bit of course it's an interval yes you're not gonna start walking yes. or you know like if no, you're running no, or, no. but you know uh, but it's a little bit of variety uh, diversity exactly. within uh, yeah that's interesting that's yes that's probably something so, 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 yes yeah yeah that's probably something that skiers don't really do i think about that much it's kind of tend to be just all guns blazing when you do a sprint and and then you yeah. then you recover and, and I, do another one yeah so so it also means i mean it's quite normal to do like seven times seven or six times eight or six times ten and it can be good to know it, it's it's probably good if uh, and this maybe happens natural because if you are a skier and you are focused on your heart rate, then you probably tend to start a bit faster anyway. So maybe they are actually doing it quite good, even though they they don't know it because they start hard, the heart rate goes up, and then suddenly maybe the climb levels out a bit, and then so it's okay if it's not totally steady, hard, hard, hard all the time. So, that's the take-home note. So this interval, take-home message. Yes, exactly. I mean, that, that's a good. That's a good. Good, definitely good tip. You know, something that uh, is a bit different. But speaking of the interval trainings and the the kind of the intensity trainings, and you mentioned this typical. I have interviewed so many of our uh, pro team athletes, and you're right. It tends to be the same. Either it's a for six times five minutes, or ten times three minutes, or three times uh, ten minutes, even twenty minutes once every once in a while and things like that is the same is kind of with the cyc uh, cyclist as well or do you have a different i more or less give the skiers the same as i did for cyclists so i am fond of some 
some typical REC, Matthias REC intervals, but they are not so typical in cycling, but they have become it now. I have, I have heard some say that there are now people saying that there are special REC sessions and REC intervals. That is not really true because I also do steady eight and 10 minutes in buildup and from time to time. But maybe the most specific things for me is my sessions with a bit harder threshold work with like three minute work and one minute rest. And when I do 40-20s, for instance, that is maybe the ones that I have been mostly famous for. But it, it doesn't mean that I don't do five times eight steady. 40-20 mean you like 40 minutes fast, 20 minutes recovery. Uh, no, sorry, 40 seconds. Uh, so so maybe it's a session of four times 10 minutes and they are done as 40-20s. 40 seconds hard, 20 seconds easy. The good thing with, I mean, uh, maybe this is a good opportunity to talk about why I like the short, short intervals better than five times five. Yes, please do. Uh, 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 as a real fine tune if you have a power meter on a bike and you let a, a rider do five times five minutes let's say that he can squeeze out 300 watts if you put him to do the same amount of work but he does it as 40 20s and in total time of work it's the same he can do 10 percent higher power 10 percent that's huge instead of 300 he can do 330 um and I think that that has an effect both, it will also have an effect on the heart, but if you train, uh, I mean, if you already train a lot, it's not going to affect the VO to max anything, but I think it will have some effect out in the muscles uh, and that will make it possible for you to ride or ski faster once there is racing. So it's like speed training more the, so it's not a specific vo to max training even though it also trains vo to max it's more that it helps you be able to ride faster and in some sessions i do it just as a short session to get like full 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 speed work and sometimes i put it in after three four hours and then it's more like speed endurance to be able to hold high speed in the end of a long race I, I I know that skiers do that uh, as well. They got a thirty seconds really fast, thirty second recovery, yes. and you do yes. a lot of repetition depending on your shape. And and also, as you said, yes. sometimes towards the end of a long training, you've done a five hour, four hour training. Uh, during the last yeah. hour, you can do like maybe a set of, you know, one set of those, you know, really short uh, sprints. Yeah, so. and I mean, the it becomes more and more important when you have mass start, and it's more and more important when you have shorter climbs and positioning. So once Visma Ski Classic becomes even more competitive and even more teams, there will be even more fight for positioning and it will be even more important to be able to do some accelerations and so on. So, so I think this is something that comes, and you see it also in, 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 tra in traditional skiing that of course, there has to be enough VO2 max and threshold to be able to survive the biggest part of the race. But the last part of it is, it is often decided by the, by the, the, the skiers that can accelerate and those accelerations and pace 
is way above VO2 max. It's probably 110, 120% out of VO2 max speed that it is that is deciding the racing. But of course, you first need to have the level that you are there for the final. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense that, that you can do 30-30s. So. Indeed. Uh, in cycling, do you guys do uh, long threshold trainings, meaning that you go out there for about an hour, maybe even two hours, and you go fast, kind of like the race pace? Or Yes. It's typical. Let's say that you are a climber, then you do a long ride, and you do maybe three times 20 or three times 30 on climbs. First, you do them steady, and then... As you come closer to the racing season, you, you also put in spikes. So you like every three, four minutes, there is an attack or something like that involved in the pacing. And sometimes you can even do 40-20s for, for, for 20 minutes. That is quite typical for a climber to, to be able to up his pace to race pace. And that is something that you also do for cross-country skiers, or you recommend them to do this? this yes, like for, I mean, it, it, of course, what is needed is a really long climb. But for instance, Ada Dahl, I put on my Insta a few weeks ago, then she was in Sundsvall, and there was a climb of 15 minutes. So then we took the, the time to do 15 minutes as 4020s to give it extra push while we were there. So definitely, I try to do it also with skiers when it's possible. Since you mentioned Ida Dahl, I think next we'll talk about Team Ramudden. Uh, the last part of this podcast will be then devoted to your uh, cross-country skiing team or long-distance uh, ski team, Team Ramudden and the athletes and uh, the training for, specific training for long-distance skiing. So that'll be our last part of the podcast. We talked about cycling so much and your training philosophy philosophy and good, you know, tips and advice that we got from you about training. Some radical ideas too, which is always good. But Team Ramutten, number one team in Visma Ski Classics right now. And the women performed so, so well. Now your overview of the team coming from the cycling world, what would you like to say about Team Ramutten? When you said it like this, uh, it came to mind when I was uh, my first year as a coach. I was up in Sierra Nevada on a high altitude camp with Marcel Kittel and John Degenkolb. And, and then I spoke to a, a trainer in Jumbo uh, Visma at, at that time. Uh, and he talked about his experience and he said how he came into the business and so on. And then then we both said, the first year, then you definitely need some luck. And I can also say that, I mean, sometimes you put in a lot of work, but it still doesn't work. So I am happy that that uh, that it went so well this, this year. It's nice to have some good flow the first year you are like head coach for a team. But it's, it's totally, uh, it's a bit crazy and amazing that, that we ended up first in the ranking in the whole world that that's pretty cool and they're always very there is always a lot of people involved so now, now of course i have gotten a lot of attention because i am 
a cycling coach, but there is, of course, a lot of people involved and there are a lot of other coaches in other teams that also do a hell of a job. Uh, but I got a lot of attention. So, so I just want to say that I am humble. <laughs> it's a new it's a new environment for you, of course. New new circuit, new surroundings. Yes, it, 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 it is definitely. And if I just go to some 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 funny things, it's a total different uh, time schedule. In cycling, there would never be a training before 9.30 unless it's a very special day that we want to do seven hours and, and we have to be back, blah, blah, blah. Then maybe we would go at nine. But normally it's 9.30, sometimes even 10 if it's cold because there is no stress. What are we going to do when we are coming back? There is nothing more to do. If you come home too early, then you just eat too much. <laughs> so, so, so normally you go, you go out at ten and you're back at four, which also means that w w when I work, I get a lot of files between four and five. In the cross country steers, already at lunch, there can be some files, and that's quite good because then I can start working on the files already in the afternoon. Why, when I work with cyclists, it is basically an afternoon and evening job to look at files. So it's, uh, I mean, the cross-country skiers at 12 o'clock, most of them, they, they have already been training for four hours. <laughs> so different, definitely. So there's another big difference, you know. You know the training yes. training schedules, but uh, but but it also means that uh, I mean I can imagine if it's dark up in the north, that they sometimes train almost in the dark. Then they then they are inside, and maybe go go to sleep uh, while it's daylight, and then they do their their next session. It's already dark again, and that is maybe not the best all the time. <laughs> And, and since I also know that you have to train really, really hard to actually to actually need to go home and eat and, uh, and rest, I think sometimes it's good to, when it's possible, to make the training in, in one session. So from nine to one and then you're done. Then you have more time to rest until the day after. It doesn't give you extra stimuli for training. At least I have not seen any science saying that uh, two plus two could not be as good as f four in a row. But I think for the, for the whole day, it will be more relaxed and give more recovery. And if you just have good nutrition during the training, most trainings, it's no problem to, to do four hours straight. That is definitely a big change, you know. There's, there's that uh, traditionally cross-country skiers, uh, the elites or the professionals tend to train twice a day, uh, except it has changed now, particularly within our circuit, meaning the long-distance skiers. They now tend to train once a day, which is then the longer session. And and I've interviewed quite a lot of these athletes that are transfer transferring from the standard distances, like Hanna Falk, for example. And that's what she told me, that it was a little bit difficult for her to kind of get used to that, doing just one workout instead of two. Yeah, that, that I can imagine. But, but, I, but I have also seen it now uh, on, I mean, I, I try to follow as many skiers as I can. And my feeling is that there is at least also a, an interest from the traditional skiers to do this a little bit more. Uh, I do not know if it's something that, that I 
and the Visma Visma Classic skiers influence them or what it is. But I, I I think it's a good I think it's good that maybe one or two times a week at least try if it's possible to make it as a cross section or take everything in one time and so on. And you also mentioned eating. So nutrition, I don't want to get too deep into it. It's a, it's a topic on its own. We could talk about eating and nutrition, you know, and carbs and proteins, you know, for days. Uh, but your sort of take on that, I've written a couple of uh, articles now for, for Visma Ski Classics about protein and carbs and so forth, and then fat burning, all that. And we all know that carbs are really important. That's the fuel for long distance uh, endurance sports. But then again, the fat burning. And uh, I tend to be kind of the one, that I don't actually eat carbs a lot, except when I'm no. racing. I'm more in a, in a low carb diet all the time. And I find that really good for myself. And then, of course, yeah. when I'm racing, I then I need to have carbs. What's your sort of yeah. your take? Is carbs or eating carbs sometimes a little bit over overrated? I mean, uh, I am I am not a nutritionist, but I am very interested, and I try to keep up with the latest science. Uh, and uh, I usually go more with what science says than what what like one or two persons say that I can do good also. Uh, without carbs so my take is like this uh, and i can take the cycling world as uh, as an example 10 15 years ago there was there was quite a big it was a it was it was at least the feeling that when you looked into science and, and the it was very interesting science that probably if you go low on carbs then you can raise your endurance even more and to have this kind of combination that if you do the long easy training rides with almost no carbs and then sometimes the opposite when you do really hard training then you make sure that you have a really high intake and that combination sh should then be for the perfect but the risks are definitely there if you start eating less and then you get over uh, over exaggerated to eat less and so on because we're also working in a sport where 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 weight is a key factor and the latest science also show that even though you try to tweak this in every certain kind of way it seems for now that it doesn't really add anything extra to train really low. That doesn't mean that there isn't an effect, but it's at least quite hard to see. And with the risks, especially in cycling, if you cannot go fast, it doesn't matter that you can go all day 40k an hour. If you cannot go 55 when it really matters, it doesn't really matter that you have maybe 2% extra endurance going for 10 hours without any carbs. So. In the pro peloton in cycling, the training with only water has become less and less. You are going to be half empty many times anyway. It doesn't matter if you eat a banana or a bar or drink some sugar during training. So that is the feeling that I have for the moment in 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 cycling and also when I read the science. That's interesting. That doesn't yeah. So, so, so that is what I can say. It doesn't mean that. It, it doesn't 
give, give you some, something, especially if you work focus on a really long endurance and you don't have to go go really fast after three four hours so so but it, it's getting less and less it's getting less and less uh, possible to have a strong mind on the effectiveness of training low it is really interesting but it, interesting yeah. because as for example uh christopher holland uh, tends to do this kind of the empty stomach type of thing that a lot of athletes do yeah. every once in a while that he goes for a long or even intensive ones without really yeah. or just drinking water uh, so there seems to be different camps yes. of course and it's, yeah. Uh, yeah and i mean uh, i i also did it a lot and we did it a lot but it for the moment it tends to get a bit less at least in my world but but it still doesn't mean that that there isn't an effect i mean there can be something that you until now cannot scientifically say which leads me to this normally when you discuss what decides performance then you usually say vo2 max you have threshold and and then you have like economy or efficiency but there is actually also a fourth one and the fourth one is to be able to sustain tiredness to keep up with the pace also after two three hours and that that quality maybe there is something there with training with very low carbohydrate uh, it's something that has to come in the future but that fourth factor is a really important one in endurance sport in cycling it determines who is a world-class sprinter and who is only a cat two. the same for climbers you can have two climbers on 20 minute full gas when they are fresh they can do the same but on the third mountain, there is one that is a lot better because he has the fourth factor more than the others. And that is, if you take a young talent to a cycling camp, he can be top five in every peak, peak one minute, peak five minute, peak 10 minutes, if everybody is fresh. But if they do a hard race after 200K, then you can see who has the ability to be a pro on the highest level. It doesn't really matter what you can do after one hour. The race is five hours. So that fourth uh, factor, I assume, pretty much uh, deals with the uh, the metabolic efficiency. Now I'm like uh, struggling yeah. with the words. Um, um, yeah, metabolic I mean, efficiency uh, and meaning the fat burning as well. Yeah, yeah. But, but I don't think that's enough either because it also has to do probably with like it's just uh, like the, probably the nerve system telling the muscles to contract that will be lower and for some it may be lowers too much uh, that the efficiency goes down so so i don't think it's possible to explain just by by how much glycogen you have how much you have been been eating or drinking uh, and your fat metabolism there is there are more things to it and it it's a very interesting thing for the future because uh, like in cycling this is really probably the most determinant key if you have 1000 pro riders they are already on a high level which are the 100 that are going to to succeed uh, and which riders become helpers then the this fourth factor is a very important part and i think it applies to skiing as well you know that fourth factor it's uh, yeah it's it's a big mystery 
that yes you said yes. maybe in the yeah. future that once we uh, do more research you know we'll find you know the answers but then uh, going back to the team ramud then if you do like quick uh, analysis of of the of the team members of the team of the team yes. and team members of the and the skiers i would say that for first of all it was really cool and i think it's a perfect cooperation to have to have me in ramuden because for instance gura korsken he has been been competing as a cyclist he has a power meter since long time ago it also means that he was interested and and open-eyed and just as max was also ada and lena they were interested in trying uh, in trying new stuff so they looked to max and they found it interesting and i think they also tried it a little bit that first season and then it started so of course it it needs a team that it that is interested and not afraid of trying something new and with Ramudan it was uh, it was a perfect match so i'm very happy for that uh, if i come to the members so on i would say it, it's quite a big difference between the men and the women because for the women then you have elena korsken who has been around for a long time so there is a lot of experience and it's probably a bit easier for Jenny and Aida to always have Elena as a reference. Uh, Lena is very good in not only focusing on herself, but also being like a good team player and a leader. The guys, they are all very nice, everything good, they have a good cooperation, but they are of course all quite young and quite new. So, so that's where I see the difference. And what type of... Uh things have you know we talked about the training quite a lot but what kind of what things have been eye openers to them when you uh, jumped in um i think that that uh, the biggest difference besides always doing the one long ride is the amount of training in the season that is for sure the one I think is the the, the biggest uh, eye opener, and that they have realized that you can actually train quite a lot during the season and even get better out of it. It doesn't tire you if you do it in the right way. And sometimes I also do blocks of like three days in a row, really hard training, and then I, I also know that it has sometimes been like an wow, I am even stronger day three let's say that we do 40 20s three days in a row full gas uh, as a real hell week and and it works it doesn't make you more tired because they also do it on ski ag and then we can measure the power so they can really see that they are equally strong also the third day that is otherwise something that is difficult uh, if you only have heart rate the heart rate goes down after a few days when you're tired but it doesn't mean that you are slower. And that's the good thing with power, that you know exactly what you are measuring. And how far can this team go? Now they are number one, but still there are a lot, a lot of things that can be improved. Um, of course, but I, I don't think I am, I don't think I'm in the position yet because I am mostly at home, but that I cannot, I cannot really give you an answer what is the next step but this year i will try to be 
a bit more involved and also go a bit more to races. But last year with pandemic and so on, and and I am unfortunately also quite busy in, in January and February when the racing started. Then I have to go to all the training camps in the in the south of Spain with with, with Rick Segafredo. But there there's always things to work on. And I think the competition is just growing and growing, that it's important to to do what we can to be even better. Indeed, and I think there will be a, really a strong team come next uh, season as well. Although, as you mentioned earlier, the other coaches and other teams are doing their best uh, to fight against, yes. and there there will be it'll be an interesting uh, season. But pretty much to wrap things up, you know, this has been a long but really uh, uh, an interesting and an, an eye-opening. A podcast uh, in the world of not just cycling but training in general. Uh, the kind of your to sum up your training philosophy for the for the mm. audience. Kind of the key teachings or key takeaways they they can have, you know, after this, our audience. Uh, I think, um, I think, normally a skier would say that they are training speed. They are doing speed work fought in Swedish when they do controlled tr- uh, threshold work but after 20 years with power meter and what it takes what kind of speed you have when you really race and when it matters it's far above it so I, I think uh, like if you can get in your mind that six times ten at threshold it's not speed work it definitely is not it's it's an it's a, an endurance exercise. It's like hard endurance training, but I would not call it speed work. Speed work has to be harder. A3 plus, if you speak Swedish, or like zone five, VO, VO2 max and above, that is the real speed work. And it's the same for for a Visma Classic for three hours, because when it's really fast and when it's really speed, it's it's usually far above any six times 10 at controlled tempo. And if you can get that, get that in your mind, then I think that you are going to be able to focus a little bit more on this dynamic intervals, the speed intervals, the short, short, which will make you a little bit faster in the end. That is, uh, that is my, my last <laughs> take then. Good philosophy. And as an absolutely last question is that since you've now done so much in your life and started as a, you know, the martial arts, okay, taekwondo, all the way to cycling and skiing, your own company, teaching, all that, what do you have left to achieve? What is sort of your grand goal in your life? My, my, my New Year's Eve saying to myself is usually that I... I, I need to be better to just lay away the computer and my phone sometimes. <laughs> so the easy things, but they are not so easy. Big, big terms goal. I was always, I, I was never good in in creating big goals. So, 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 so I cannot give you an answer to this one. I am just happy where I am, and 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 uh, that that's it. Not to yes. use a computer and phone all the time. Exactly. To not be too addicted. 
Thank you very much, <laughs> Matthias. I mean, it's been really been enlightening, really insightful uh, to talk to you and, and, and learn more about cycling world and the kind of the correlation to, to skiing. And of course, since you are coaching uh, Team Ramud and you also as a ski coach, it's been a pleasure to have you on our podcast series. Thank you very much for being part of this. Yes. Thank you also. Thank you very much. It was really, it was really a pleasure. I enjoyed it a lot. Thank you. Thank you. And you people out there, thank you once again for joining us. And as always, remember, you can send us uh, ideas, requests, uh, anything you want to say. Our address is press uh, at uh, wsportsmedia.com. Once again, press at wsportsmedia.com. That's your email address for feedback, uh, questions, requests, and so forth. And stay tuned for more podcasts to come. And once again, thank you for joining us. Stay healthy and see you soon. Bye-bye. This podcast is a W Sports Media production.